NBA on NBC. What is up, everybody? This is Jim Milak, and you're listening to the podcast where we break down former athletes inside whether or not you get a call to the hall. On today's podcast, we're talking about former MLB outfielder Dale Murphy and whether or not he belongs in Cooperstown. Enjoying us just a moment to discuss Dale's Hall of Fame candidacy is Clayton Truder, who has a new book coming out called Loserville. How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. And that book's coming out next year. And Clay and I will talk a little bit about that book actually at the end of the podcast. But before we bring Clay on and talk about Dale Murphy's Hall of Fame candidacy, let's talk a little more about Murphy. Murphy was honestly one of the biggest kind of names in baseball in the 1980s. He won back-to-back MVP awards. Uh, He hit 398 career home runs and also had... 2,111 hits, 1,266 RBIs, 161 stolen bases, and had a 265 career batting average, 346 career uh, on base percentage, and a 469 career slugging percentage. To go along with those two MVP awards he won, he was also a five-time gold glove winner playing center field in Atlanta and was also a seven-time all-star. He led the league in home runs twice, RBIs twice, and slugging percentage twice. So that all sounds great. So, you know, why, why is Dale Murphy not in the Hall of Fame today? Why are we talking about him? Well, advanced metrics are definitely not uh, Dale Murphy's friend. If we're looking at war. His career war is 46.5, and his career jaws is 43.9. And if you're someone that follows advanced metrics, you know those numbers fall a little short of what a typical Hall of Famer has, and Clay and I will go into that in just a bit. But Dale Murphy's been off the, the ballot for several years now. He, he's got on the ballot first in 1999, where he got 19.3% of the vote, which is not bad for your first year. But he never really got much higher than that. He was on the ballot all 15 years he was eligible to be on the ballot. Last year was in 2013. But he never got over 23.2% of the vote. And we all know that the threshold is 75%. So he got nowhere near getting the Hall of Fame, even though he was a, again, two-time MVP award winner and one of the best players, honestly, in the 80s. So now to get in the Hall of Fame, it's, it's up to the Modern Air Baseball Committee to vote him in. Um, they vote every several years. They last voted for the 2020 class. Uh, there's 16 people on this Modern Air Baseball Committee. You need 12 of the 16 votes to get in. He got three or less. Three, he got three or less. We don't know. He, two, one, three. That's all it says on there. But three or less by that committee. So he was many ballots off from getting in uh, that modern air committee will again vote uh, in 2023, the fall of 2023 for the, the class of 2024. So if you're, I'm sure I'll play this again in 2023 while we're talking about Dale Murphy again. So if you're joining 2023, welcome to the podcast. Uh, so those are the quick facts about Dale Murphy. Uh, let's bring on Clayton. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast today, Clayton Truder. Clayton, how are you doing today? Doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk about Dale Murphy and talk about the history of the Braves. Of course. So um, before we get to Dale Murphy, just a little background on Clayton. Clayton, he holds a PhD in U.S. history from Boston College. He currently teaches at Norwich University, which I just learned before the show, is in Vermont. And he's the author of the upcoming book, Loserville, how professional sports remade Atlanta and how Atlanta remade professional sports. 
And that comes out on February 1st, 2022. It's available for pre-order on amazon.com right now and other, I think, probably online outlets. And we will actually talk about that at the end of the podcast. But Clayne, first things first, before we talk about your book, as you said, we're talking about Dale Murphy today and his Hall of Fame candidacy. And as my listeners know, the first thing I ask my guests is, when you think of Dale Murphy, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Dale Murphy is the first superstar of sports on cable television. Dale Murphy on PBS is the first face that people associate with professional sports becoming this ever-present aspect of our lives, not just on the weekends on the networks, but something one can watch every single evening. On TBS, Dale Murphy became the Braves to much of America. The Braves were a very weak and floundering franchise for much of the 1970s and 1980s. They had the one little period, 1982, when they win the division. That's very much an aberration. The reason people tuned in was to watch Dale Murphy. Dale Murphy was arguably the biggest television baseball star of the 1980s. There are millions of people who chose to stay home and turn the television on to watch Dale Murphy play baseball, more than arguably anybody in that era. And I think if you're looking at a Hall of Fame, one of the key aspects to the story is fame. And Dale Murphy was an incredibly famous player, arguably the most famous baseball player of the 1980s. Yeah, he, you know, he really ruled the decade. I, I was even thinking like best players in general in the 80s. You know, I, I immediately, go, you know, gravitate to Mike Schmidt, but even like 70s, I almost think of Mike Schmidt even more than the 80s. Dale Murphy really is the premier player. We'll probably get to it a little later, but I, I think the major thing that happened here is his career just kind of after the 80s injuries at all after I think the age of maybe 32 33 his play completely dropped off but for eight nine ten years there he really was one of the best if not the best player in the decade and I think back-to-back MVP awards in the beginning of the decade really kind of proved that and and as you said I think everyone was watching the, in the Braves in the 80s and I think your point of him being that first commercial star I think it makes a lot of sense. I think if you would ask a common baseball fan, Clayton, uh, someone that, you know, followed the game, maybe in the 70s and 80s, do you, is Dale Murphy in the Hall of Fame? I, I, I bet they would assume he already was in, but it's actually the opposite. He's not only not in the Hall of Fame, he was never even really close to getting in the Hall of Fame. He actually never even got over 25% of the vote in any which year, which, which is wild as what you just said, that he never even got above 25%. That, that that absolutely boggles my mind. I have a few theories on that, but uh, I think, I guess in general, I'd like to make the case for him just initially. To me, it should be incredibly obvious, both on the field and off the field. I would just say off the field quickly. People talk about the character clause in, in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Usually that's seen as a negative thing. Dale Murphy, it's an entirely positive thing. Every charity in Atlanta, all they need do was ask and Dale Murphy would do whatever he could for them through his church he did a tremendous amount of charity work in 1987 he was the sports illustrated sportsman of the year part of eight, eight different athletes were called athletes who care from across the sporting landscape from across the world Dale Murphy was their choice for baseball um, through his work in charity for his church through his work in charity uh, in the Atlanta community he wins the Roberto Clemente award he wins the Bar Giamatti award there's probably no more decorated player for his off the field efforts on behalf of his fellow man than Dale Murphy so in terms of that he's certainly a hall of famer yeah he, I mean he's a if there is a good guy hall of fame across sports he's first ballot in terms of that I don't know if you're gonna find a better guy and at least scandalous guy 
And, and that you brought up a great point, the character clause. Here's the problem with the character clause. It's only used when it's a negative. It's if if you had a bad if you're a bad character, it's held against you. But if you have a good character, that literally gets you no points. And you know, I don't know if that's how it was designed to be, but again, Dale Murphy should get a few brownie points at minimum for just being a stand-up all-around good guy. But but Clay, I, I want to get to our, our our first kind of main segment here. And we of course call this that memorable moment. <laughs> And what we try to do here is look at an athlete's career and say, if you were to pinpoint whether it be a single game, even in that bat or a season, what would you say Dale Murphy's most memorable moment was? I think it is almost um, Dale Murphy's most memorable moment is in some ways kind of a more ethereal kind of thing. Him just owning that decade, the 80s so well, in particular from 82 through 85. He is the MVP of the National League in 82 and 83. Mike Schmidt had preceded him as the MVP in 80 and 81. He stopped Schmidt cold from getting MVP award after MVP award. Dale Murphy is a genuine rival and foil to him being the top player in the National League. Murphy follows up those two MVP campaigns with being the home run champ in the National League in 84 and 85. He wins the gold glove all four of those seasons. He is a 30, he's a 30-30 man in 1983. He's only the seventh ever guy to do this. I think it's hard to find any player who had a better four-year stretch than Murphy does between 82 and 85. You can certainly stretch this out more broadly into the decade from roughly 80 through 87 as his golden age. But that particular moment as cable television is a new thing. This is a guy that people planned not only their evening around, but when they left the room around. If you watch those games on TBS in the mid-80s, they would often point out, uh, Dale Murphy is going to be uh, is on deck. Dale Murphy is in the hole. Dale Murphy is four batters away. That it wasn't just about watching the Braves, that people could in particular tailor their watching of the game specifically to Dale Murphy's at-bats. And the idea that one particular person was that much the face of baseball on the station speaks to his celebrity and speaks to the pressure he was under as a national figure to produce. And he did as well as anybody did in any particular era. Yeah. I mean, from 1980 to 1990. So if you count 1990 in this, he had the most home runs during that time period. If you just do the eighties, I think he's a few behind Mike Schmidt, but, but I mean, Dale Murphy, as you said, dominated the eighties. I, I, you know, I tried to pinpoint to one year, and, and I don't know if you would pick a better year than this, but I thought the 82 season was his premier year. That was MVP year. That was a gold glove year. He led the league in RBIs. But more importantly, I guess, in my mind, is that was the year he got the Braves to the playoffs in, in 82. And, you know, they, they, when they got there, they got swept by the Cardinals, but that was the first time they'd been in the playoffs since 1969. And because you, I think you mentioned earlier, the seventies were not the best time for the Braves. And that was only the second time actually in Braves history while they were in Atlanta, that they actually made the playoffs. So I saw that as that one year where he really did bring them, you know, close to the world series that year. And, and I don't know, you know, I'm not, you're the historian, you know, the 82 team, was that a, a great Braves team or did he kind of drag that team to that, you know, the cusp of getting to a world series? 
They're a funny team. They got so hot so early. I think in some ways, if you want to pinpoint a moment, it could be the very beginning of the 82 season because the Braves start by winning 13 consecutive games. No team had ever done that before. And it made the Braves a national story. And in some ways kind of highlighted that this is a team that's being watched by people all over the country, that there are Braves fans in Fargo, North Dakota. There are Braves fans in Phoenix, Arizona. There are Braves fans in the Southeast. People all over the country watching this team go on this remarkable streak. The Braves, in some ways, just kind of hung on the rest of the way and found a way to win the NL West in spite of uh, struggling for much of the summer. So I think basically the Braves were a team that got hot early. They had a lot of power. In addition to Murphy, Bob Horner was a major power hitter of the era, too. Their pitching was a bit was a bit up and down. Um, I mean, you had a late career Phil Necro, but this was this was hardly, you know, this was hardly the, you know, Drysdale How old was Phil Kopech. Necro at that point? Was he like mid 37? Oh, OK. It's, it's not. 45-year-old Phil Negro yet. Okay. He's get, he's getting there. He's getting there. <laughs> but he still had a pretty still had a pretty good season. But yeah, this is this is a power hitting team and I mean they certainly when they faced the Cardinals they faced their exact opposite with the Whitey Herzog small ball team and they're pretty quickly dispatched in that series. But yeah, Bill Dale Murphy in many respects wills that team to the championship has he has really his breakout campaign. He made the All-Star team in 80 82 is when he really becomes a figure on the the national landscape. Um, and in that time period, you very quickly start to see many of the baseball greats say, well, Murphy is the great player of this generation. If you go to Dale Murphy's website, he has actually a bunch of quotes from different people, whether it's his manager, Joe Torrey, whether it's from Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Nolan Ryan, Joe DiMaggio. They all, when they're looking at the 80s, point to Dale Murphy as being the best player of the era. So in addition to his, in my, in my mind, his, his on-the-field success speaks for itself. But having the endorsements of those guys certainly doesn't hurt either. Yeah. And, you know, I was trying to think, I was trying to think like, and I don't, I don't want to say what I'm about to say because it's not correct, but it's, I, I want to baseball fan, like people listening today that, uh, you know, obviously didn't live in the eighties or didn't follow, you know, Braves baseball or don't know much about Dale Murphy to try to put it. I want to put it in context of like today's game and how, crazy it maybe is for for people from the 80s to realize maybe dale murphy's not in the hall of fame today I, it's it's okay i want to be clear he's not mike trout but it'd be like if mike trout you know mike trout's getting injured kind of last couple seasons now it'd be like if mike trout kind of never really played a full season again and just suddenly got terrible at baseball and just really couldn't put together a complete season again but he had those you know first eight seasons that were just all time. I think Trout has three MVPs. Dale only had two. It almost be like Mike Trout in 30 years, he was, he was not in the hall of fame for some reason because his career fell off at the age of 29. Now, I think honestly, if Trout's career ended today, I, I think he actually would be in the hall of fame because he's yes. all time, all time. That's why I'm saying it's not a perfect comparison, but I was trying to think of another younger, great player who has played like seven or eight seasons today that you're like, that guy is going to be in the Hall of Fame, but, you know, he hasn't played enough yet to get it. I mean, Mike Trout is not the right answer. Is there someone else I'm missing here that has like seven or eight, like maybe Bryce Harper would be a better example? If that, that could Harper be. I think either on? of those comparisons make sense. In a, in a way, I think if Murphy had retired two or three years earlier, his his case would have yes. been made stronger. Oh, he's a guy who retires young because the parallel will be Ralph Kiner. Ralph Kiner only played 10 seasons in the 40s and 50s. Yes. He has the highest career home run per season average. Well, he, he gets hurt. He retires young. Murphy would have just been another example of that. But because he hangs on, 
probably a little bit too long. It it diminishes some of his, some of his numbers. I mean, his 265 career batting average is not exactly exemplary, and it gets hurt by his later seasons. Um, but yeah, I think if Murphy had retired at say 33, he would have been a guy who who left the game too young, as opposed to a guy who hung on a little bit too long. One thing also to think about with Dale Murphy is this is a guy who spent the first three years of his career as a catcher. He converts to being an outfielder and becomes the best center fielder in the National League during the 1980s. He has a deadly arm. He wins five gold gloves. He's known for having a very, uh, very broad range. He was a, a great athlete in center field. So his defensive prowess should certainly help him well. But this is a guy who's learning on the job his position, in addition to being one of the elite hitters in the league. So I, th- I think maybe Kiner would be a good comparison in the sense that he had a fairly, fairly condensed period of greatness and ended up in the Hall of Fame. In spite of his um, his kind of ignominious end, um, you look at you look at um, Murphy compared to a lot of the other greats, some of the other great sluggers in the Hall of Fame. He's got more home runs than Tony Perez. He's got more than Harold Haynes. He's got more than um, he's got more than Orlando Cepeda. He's got more than Larry Walker. Uh, he's got more than Kiner. Um, there's a lot of other sluggers, and I think essentially you would call Dale Murphy a slugger. There's a lot of other sluggers who had fewer home runs than Murphy who got in. At the time of his retirement, he was 27th on the all-time list. Obviously, there's been some changes for a, for a number of reasons. He's number 60 now. I think his career RBI totals may have hurt him a little bit too. He's like 131, I think it is. He's got 1266. But I think he was on a bad team for most of his career. RBIs are such a contingent statistic. It's not his fault there was no never anybody on base. So some of his RBI title t- totals look a little lesser than some of his uh, potential peers. But I, th- I think that can be explained to a great extent by being on a very bad team for much of his career. Yeah, th- those are all really good points. Um, Clint, I do want to move to our, our last mini segment here. We call this and twins. No, quarterbacks eating dirt. And and what we do here in baseball is always my favorite for Ann Twins because there's a lot of history with baseball. So if you were to look at the Hall of Fame today, who do you say best resembles Dale Murphy in terms of either his actual statistics or how he played or a mix of both? Who Whose case or what player most reminds you of Dale Murphy? I think Jim Rice. Jim Rice comes into the league at roughly the same time. Rice is a rookie in 75, plays a little bit in 74, has a fairly short career. He retires in 89. Um, Things deteriorated quite rapidly for him actually after the 87 season, just like Murphy. Uh, If Murphy had retired at the same time as Jim Rice, maybe they they would both be in the hall at this point. I mean, it took Jim Rice a while to get in. I think in some ways Murphy has a stronger case than Jim Rice because he had a, a longer period of, uh, of greatness that, than Rice did. Rice was a little more scattershot with it. But they come into league, uh, the league in roughly the same time period. Uh, Rice has, I think, about 25 fewer home runs than, than Murphy does. He played a few uh, lesser years. He's also an outfielder. He's not nearly the, the defensive player that Murphy was. He was never, never a gold glover. Um, I think also in some ways their both of their respective relationships with the media kind of hurt them. Murphy, in a way, I think had this strange thing where because he was such an obviously good guy, such an objectively decent person, I think he he becomes Hall of Fame eligible in 99. And I think there's certainly a coarsening of the culture in that age of Fred Durst and Jerry Springer and things like that. He's He's the least edgy guy one could imagine. 
And I think people could have potentially seen him as being kind of Mickey Mouse or a lightweight in that time period. And I think that hurt him. And then he's on the ballot until 2013. And as more and more of these guys who may have been chemically enhanced appeared on the ballot, they had surpassed him in the home run totals, his numbers start to look pedestrian. So culturally, there were reasons at the beginning of his time on the ballot that hurt him. And I think numbers-wise, not knowing exactly what to compare um, when the the chemically enhanced guys came on the ballot also also hurt um, hurt Murphy. I think Rice was hurt by some of the same things. Rice had a had a rather acrimonious relationship with the Boston Press, which hurt him. So he didn't he even though he came from a fairly prominent market, didn't really have the Boston Press behind him in the way um, other players may have had these sports writers in their market behind them. Atlanta was a funny place, even though Atlanta is a fairly large market. The Braves had not been an especially successful franchise, and I think didn't he didn't totally have the I guess regional support of the baseball writers that one might expect uh, in that time period as well. Yeah, I, I really like. I had Jim Rice. I you know I always jot down a, a couple people. I had Jim Rice down. I mean, in terms of being a slugger, I, I think they're very similar, and I, I would give this slight edge to Murphy. I I think the big thing with looking at Rice and Murphy is the one thing that really hurts Dale Murphy, especially in today's, you know, younger voters are coming on board is, is advanced metrics, right? His wars 46.5 Dale Murphy's and in hall of fame terms, that's very low, but Jim Rice's is just, just above it at 47.7. So it's just like uh, what 1.2 higher, which is nothing. It's mute. And then if you tie in the fact that, you know, Murphy has two MVPs to one, and then Murphy was a much better outfielder. We haven't really talked about that, but he does have five gold gloves. Mm-hmm. And when you really look all time at players that hit home runs the way Murphy did, as well as played good defense in the outfield, it's actually not that large of a list. It actually is a very small list of people that done that. And Jim Rice, to my knowledge, was not that great of a defender whatsoever. No. So I think Murphy has the edge of him on defense. I honestly look at Murphy as a better slugger um, better defender, better slugger. And then in terms, I, I guess the only thing rice, I would give him, I think rice hit better for average, right? Rice had a, yes. almost, I think he almost batted for 300. As you said earlier, Murphy's low batting average probably hurts him. But if I had to pick between Dale Murphy and Jim rice, honestly, which is not what the hall of fame is just because someone's in and someone's out, I would pick Dale Murphy over Jim rice. And that's just me. In, in regards to the war thing, one thing I would say on behalf of Murphy is that in seven seasons, he finished in the top 10 in the league in that in that statistical category. I mean, it's it's a retrospective thing, certainly, because it's not something a lot of people were talking about in the time period. But even even looking back, I think one thing is you have you have to put players in their context and even using advanced metrics in his context that that, that demonstrates he's an elite player for a significant part of his career using those those new me- means of looking at the game. I think another thing about Murphy is when you, especially when you compare him to some of the players who came after him, his career took a very natural progression. He's a guy that got into his, as he got into his mid thirties, he got older. He started to, he started to break down physically. He had knee problems. He had shoulder problems. And those started to show, I kind of find it appealing a guy whose career actually happened the way guys careers had (laughs) traditionally happened, as opposed to having this odd uptick in your late thirties. And to me, it's it's narrative wise, it makes sense that a guy retires when he no longer has those skills. Yeah, I mean, so this this can't be a submission for Antwins because this player's not in the Hall of Fame, but I think it makes a lot of sense 
to, to compare him to, to someone who's trying to get in the hall of fame and is an Atlanta brave, but Andrew Jones, right? Like I, yes. I see a lot of similarities between both, both home run hitters, both low batting averages, both. I mean, Andrew Jones is all time center fielder, but both defensively sound uh, Jones a lot more than Murphy, but still defensively sound gold gloves. Um, I mean, Murphy has the two MVPs. Andrew does it. And they both fell off. I think Andrew fell off earlier. I think he fell off at 30. Murphy was maybe a couple of years later. And Andrew Jones is struggling in the Hall of Fame right now. I think he built a lot of good momentum this last voting um, period, but he's not a shoe in whatsoever. And I think no. Murphy, Murphy and Jones are almost extremely similar in terms of career arc. Yeah, I would see Don Mattingly as also having a similar career arc. There was a five-year period in the 80s when he would be broadly considered not only one of the most famous players in baseball, but also one of the best players in baseball. A great defensive player as well, a a power hitter for a certain period of his career. He had back problems and he got older, fairly young. In my mind, again, the issue of the Hall of Fame being a designation of fame in part, Don Mattingly certainly deserves that. There are millions of people who paid specifically to watch Don Mattingly play baseball as they paid specifically to watch Dale Murphy play it. Um, one thing with the Braves attendance to also look at is the Braves drew very poorly um, throughout the 1970s and 1980s. So Murphy, I mean, they had a little bit of an uptick in 82 and 83, but that was a very difficult baseball market throughout this time period. One thing I would say to look at in terms of the um, national response to Murphy is the Braves road attendance. The Braves in the 80s jumped to being one of the top road draws in the National League. And this is largely due to the team being on P- on TBS and having a marketable star in Dale Murphy. There are people all around the country who are watching the Braves who went to Major League Baseball games specifically to watch Dale Murphy play. It wasn't just people passively watching on their televisions. It was people going to stadiums and paying their hard-earned dollars to go watch Dale Murphy and the Atlanta Braves play with the emphasis on the Dale Murphy part. He was the star the kids wanted to see. Moreover, I can prove to you Dale Murphy had excellent penmanship. This is my on the back of a on the back of a um, flyer for a bazaar at a uh, suburban Atlanta elementary school. My Dale Murphy autograph in pencil. Gorgeous handwriting. It almost looks like a letter from the battlefield in the Civil War or something. That is um, excellent penmanship. I, I can barely write at this point with uh, with with I don't I guess I don't write other than signing a check. So that's all I got at this point. That's beautiful. I, I got that from my Aunt Carol. My, my, uh, my cousins were living in suburban Atlanta during the uh, late 80s and early 90s, and one of the kids played in a league with one of Dale Murphy's kids, and after every game, it turned into an impromptu multi-hour autograph and picture session with Dale Murphy, and he apparently sat there and smiled for every picture, talked to every family, signed autographs, and was just couldn't have been a, 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 a better representative of the Atlanta team. I also would say just in a more general sense, I can't think of a big league ball player. I would more want my son to be like than Dale Murphy. I think he's the perfect role model for kids in an age when there are people who, who very much shunned the idea of being a role model as an athlete. Yeah. And for those uh, listening at home, uh, Clayton was showing me an autograph of Dale Murphy. I didn't really call that out, but that's what I was visualizing during this. I know you all cannot see that, but Clayton, I want to get to our main event here. So we call this court. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. It's really case for case against Dale Murphy. Obviously we've been doing it throughout the podcast, but, but to kind of start at case four, you know, we've mentioned quite a bit here, but if you were, if you were talking to a hall of fame voter today and they only had a, you know, 
a minute or two of your time. And they were going into the room um, as part of like a senior committee to actually vote if Dale Murphy should be in the Hall of Fame or not. Because um, as I said in the intro of the podcast, you know, Dale Murphy is, you know, he has to be voted by the senior committee at this point. He is no longer eligible, of course, uh, to be a modern day candidate. If you only had a minute or two of his time, what would you really lead with? What would be the main bullet points you're giving that voter of why Dale Murphy is a Hall of Famer? Dale Murphy was the most well-rounded player of his era. He was a great defensive player. He was a great hitter. He was a speedy player at times. He was arguably the most famous player of his era, too. There were more people watching him on a regular basis play baseball, specifically tuning in to watch him than any other player of the 1980s. And Dale Murphy is the embodiment of everything positive role models ought to be in professional sports. I think you just boil it down to those three points. He's an on and off the field, obvious Hall of Famer. Yeah, no, I, and, and when I look at the things I look at with Dale Murphy, I mean, career numbers, you get iffy if you're talking about Hall of Fame, but significant significance in, in a decade. I, I look at, I, I do this a lot uh, across all sports um, where I have this theory that if you're a top five player at, at your position in your decade, you at minimum should have significant Hall of Fame consideration. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you should be in, but if you're top five, you should be in the conversation. There's some decades where there's a lot of great players at positions, and if you're six or seven, you still should get, you know, some recognition. But top five, you definitely should. If you're talking about center fielders from the '80s, is Dale Murphy at the very top of the list? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's 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 evident both in terms of his performance as a defensive player and as a hitter. He's a genuine five-tool player, and he was for a significant portion of his career. And also as a person who showed the ability to transform from being a catcher to being this great defensive player. Um, he's a great story of perseverance in that respect, too. If I, like, I kind of want to run through a couple outfielders from the 80s. I just, like, is he, do you put him above these players in terms of, they should be in the Hall of Fame. Like, like on, on, I'm a Chicago guy. Andre Dawson is one of, you know, uh, one of the great Cubs of all time. He is in the Hall of Fame. He won an MVP in the 80s, but he is in and Dale Murphy's out. Do you consider Dale Murphy a, a better player or a better or more Hall of Fame worthy than a Andre Dawson? I would consider them peers. I mean, Dawson has, has an interesting career because it transitions between so many different franchises and a star both in Montreal as well as in Chicago. So I would see that, I guess I would see them as being roughly, roughly on the same level. Okay. No, I mean, that, that's the main guy. Cause you know, I was looking, I really, I real quick, just to make sure I wasn't forgetting when I was looking like the best outfitters from the eighties, like there's players like the all times, like Ricky Henderson, Tony Gwynn, obviously he's not going to be above, but when you get into Andre Dawson's, that's where I was feeling like his peers are. And again, Andre Dawson wins one MVP. He's winning two. You said earlier Schmidt won two in the 80s. I yeah, believe 80 right, and 81, yeah. Mur- Murphy and Schmidt are the only two players in the 80s winning multiple MVPs, correct? I believe so. And I think also the 80s are an interesting decade because there's not one dominant team in the way there are in other decades. I mean, I think is it, were there nine world champions in the 10 years of the 80s? I think I think the Dodgers yeah. won in 80, 81 and 80, uh, 88. But in the same way, I think there were not really the the dominant players in the same sense as as some other decades where they'd be quite evident but i think i think murphy would be would certainly in the conversation for one of the handful of best players of that era yeah and the one point i want to get to before i think we need to talk a little bit about maybe why he's not in today as Mm -hmm. well but the one thing i wanted to bring up to light is 
we're probably talking about it a second, and, and you addressed it earlier, Clayton, but when it comes to advanced metrics, it maybe doesn't paint, you know, Dale in the best light. But mm-hmm. something I look at, honestly, more most of the time than advanced metrics is, you know, I, I'm a guy, I'm on baseball reference all the time. Yes. Uh, I, I think I call that all the time. I, I should honestly have them sponsor this podcast <laughs> the amount of time I am on there. Um, you know, if, if you're someone that goes on uh, baseball reference, and I'm sure if you listen to this podcast, you've been there a time or two, you know, in the baseball one, they have the Bill James, like black ink, gray ink, Hall of Fame monitor, all that stuff near the bottom where it says, yep. you know, it kind of looks at metrics of, you know, who's in the Hall of Fame today and how does this person rank? And you, if you look at the black ink, which, you know, that's all about how many times you've led a statistical category, Murphy is considered likely a Hall of Famer. If you look at the gray ink, which counts the number of times someone finished in the top 10 in a major statistical category, Murphy is a likely Hall of Famer. And if you look at the Hall of Fame monitor, which kind of adds in the achievements, so all-star games, MVPs, things like that to predict Hall of Fame success, Murphy is a likely Hall of Famer. So I understand the advanced metric community does not approve maybe of Murphy's candidacy, but I think the lack of war is really just his career was short and then he didn't have those later seasons getting two to three war a year to kind of build him up into the sixties, you know, mid sixties to get him in that more hall of fame, concrete consideration. When he fell off, I think he had a couple seasons where it was negative. He's actually, as you said earlier, it was actually hurting him playing more impacting that. But if I look at who's in the hall of fame today and that all of his credentials in terms of when he led the league in certain categories, accolades he got he's a hall of famer across all of those i personally hold i hold that at a higher standard than than a war and, and again that's just me and i know voters are different but that's how i look at it i mean what do you think the significance of those different metrics are by bill james do you hold that into high account when thinking about if someone should be in the hall of fame or not i don't personally i i think of it i try to put guys particular historical context how do they compare among their peers i I think to some extent it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy all of those statistics Mm -hmm. that if one doesn't know they exist um in terms of the decisions you make in terms of playing the game or managing the game one can easily transgress them and and hurt what they look like in in uh in retrospect so i think that may have hurt a lot of guys in 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 different eras in in a way that to me seems a little bit unfair going forward i think certainly it's fair game in terms of uh when considering players, but it, to me, it's a, it's a bit uh, anachronistic to, to lay that onto players who existed before that was a, a well-known um, statistical form of analysis in terms of, in terms of, are we at the point of the case against Murphy? I have a few thoughts. I wa- on- I, I, yeah. I want to, I want to just ask you one more question before we sure. get there. Um, how many players do you think in MLB history have two or more MVPs and are not in the hall of fame today? Isn't Hal Newhouser not in the Hall of Fame? Is this the one? No, he's in the Hall of Fame. He is? Okay. Uh, I'm going to guess zero then. There is. So, so oh, Bonds. Or, I guess or, bond, you know, Bonds yeah. and Clemens. So it's it's Barry Bonds, D- Dale Murphy. Mm-hmm. There's two more. You, we talked about him earlier before the show. Roger Maris. Roger, Roger Maris. Maris. Okay, 1661, yeah. And, and then this is my – I have to do an episode on him because he's – He's one of the more interesting just players in general career-wise. Juan Gonzalez, two MVPs. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, and he never sniffed the Hall of Fame. I actually think he fell off the ballot the first year. 
Um, those are the only four. So Dale Murphy is one of four. Bonds obviously is not in. Bonds is basically we, we, the we, opposite we, of Dale Murphy. We, yeah. <laughs> we all know why Bonds is in. Roger Maris, um, we, we could talk about that another episode. I'm going to save the Roger Maris thing for another episode I want to do. Um, but Roger Maris' career, 275 career home runs, just even less of a peak of Dale Murphy. And then Juan Gonzalez is super interesting too. But out of those, not counting Barry Bonds, because that's just not fair, out of Juan Gonzalez, Roger Maris, and Dale Murphy, I think Dale Murphy is by far the best candidate out of those three. Would you agree? Me too. That? Absolutely, no. yeah. Yeah, oh, I, I think it's not even close, yeah. Yeah, so everyone else is in the Hall of Fame with two more MVPs, which I think is a big case for thing. But let's shift over the case against. We've been saying a lot of nice things about Dale Murphy. However, he is not in the Hall of Fame today. He, as we said earlier, never sniffed the Hall of Fame when he was um, on the bound. The highest he ever got was 23.2% in 2000. And, you know, he's been on the on the committee now. It's the, the Modern Air Baseball Committee. Uh, he just got the 2020 class was where he could have got voted in. And you need 12 of 16 votes. There's 16 people that sit on that committee. You need 12 of 16 to get in. He got three or less. So he really didn't even get a chance there. So there's obviously reasons why he's not in. So let's talk about that. You said you had a couple points. Turn it over to you. Let me have him. First of all, I, th I think since his retirement, he's fallen way down on the home run and RBI lists due to some changes in the games in subsequent decades. So he's now 60th on the home run list. When he retired, I think there were only one or two guys ahead of him who were not in the Hall of Fame. I kind of wonder if he had, he's at 398. I kind of wonder if he had crossed that 400 threshold would he have gotten in simply for, simply for getting to that point. But his number looks, there's all these guys who, weren't nearly as famous as Dale Murphy, who've gone way beyond him in terms of home runs. And, and I think as a result of that, you look at the list and he's just so far down now, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't look like an automatic Hall of Famer just in terms of that. So just, I guess that that aspect of the Hall of Fame criteria certainly hurts him. I think the success of the Braves in the 1990s hurts him too. This guy, if he was such a great player, why were they such a bad team for so long? And he leaves the Braves and almost immediately they're the best team in the National League for 10 years, 15 years. Um, so as voters are looking at, at, at um, the Hall of Fame, they're deciding, are we going to vote for a guy who's the face of a losing franchise when there's all these guys who are obvious Hall of Famers come after him on this team over, you know, Maddox and Smoltz and, and all those guys and, and Glavin in the, in the next decade. So do you want to reward losing when there's a very clear clear opportunity to reward winning very soon thereafter with other Braves players? And I think thirdly, I think in a very small sense, the coarsening of the culture probably hurt him too, that he doesn't, when he becomes a, a candidate, he is very not reflective of what's going on in the culture in the late 1990s. He seems like, like the exact opposite of it in many respects. Yeah, I, a couple of points on everything you just said. So as silly as it sounds, maybe to listeners hitting two more home runs and being a part of the 400 club. I think that does matter to some voters. You just, you're in a different category and it's, yeah. that's super silly to me, but I think those nice round, big numbers, those clubs, you can be, there's no 300 club. There's a 400 club really. And it really, it's really the 500 club. Obviously McGraw Cabrera just passed it. It was, it was actually, I'm glad they made it a big deal again, because if you take out people that are accused of steroids, the, the 500 home run list is still like, it's very prestigious. It's very mm -hmm. hard to get to. And I'm glad they made a big deal about McGraw Cabrera doing it because I, I 
all signs point to he did it the right way. Um, and I'm glad they made a huge deal about that. But outside of that, you know, I think the two more home runs would, would, would have helped there. I think, as you said, it's hard that someone that sits 60 today on the all-time home runs list can be considered a slugger. Um, even though we talked about he was the best, if not the second best home run hitter in an entire decade, um, not hitting 400. I don't think anyone, especially a younger person, is going to be like, oh, that guy, 398, that, that's nothing. People do that. People hit over 400 all the time. So I agree with you there. Um, the Braves thing of the 90s Braves kind of ruining it for me. So I want to ask you this. As someone who obviously wrote a book about Atlanta sports, you know, when I think of the best hitters in Atlanta Braves history, I want to be specific, Atlanta Braves history, I, I think of Dale Murphy, I think of Chipper Jones, and now today I think of Freddie Freeman. Well, I mean, Hank Aaron, I think I'd put well, first. So I'm forward. talking Atlanta strictly. Oh, Hank, I would. I mean, yeah. Aaron's best seasons are in Atlanta. I mean, he they really are? goes oh on. My gosh. Look at his numbers in the early 70s. He goes on an absolute tear. All He's right. like. You know, he he becomes the Hank Aaron we know in Atlanta. I mean, he just absolutely crushes it in the in the early seventies and, and gets on this this. He, he's one of the few guys who went get past five hundred. Really starts going, continues to be a slugger. You know what I thought? I didn't realize the Braves. I think got there in '66. I didn't think they got there till the early seventies. So that's why I'm so I'm like, why am I so off thinking that? Yeah, when they moved to Atlanta, he was only thirty two years old. He had a lot of time left. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. Um, okay, so Hank Aaron's number one, so I don't even want to talk about But out of Chipper Jones and Freddie Freeman, in terms of a slugger, how, how do you rank those three? Dale Murphy, Chipper Jones. I don't want to even include Hank Aaron in this. It's not fair. The dip, yeah, but yeah. Ch- Chipper Jones, Freddie Freeman, uh, Dale Murphy. How, how, do, how do you rank those in terms of just overall excellence as a power hitter for the Braves organization? I think I would probably put Chipper one, Dale two, and Freddie Freeman three. I think I think with Freeman, it's it's in some ways too early to tell what his legacy. I mean, he's obviously been a great player for several years now, but I think it's a little early to figure out what his legacy is going to be. I think Chipper just being the face of the franchise uh, on the offensive side of it, at least during their glory years, it's t- it's tough to look past him as being the leading post Hank Aaron offensive force in the Braves history. No, I think that's fair. And that's kind of how I would rank it too. I, I cannot believe that Hank Aaron um, snafu. I, I just want to throw it out there. Hank Aaron is on my baseball Rushmore. I just really got the Atlanta year messed up there. So I apologize um, to any Hank Aaron fans out there that freaked out when I, when I did not say that he was one of the best power hitters in Atlanta Braves history, but outside of those two things, the other thing I just, I pulled up a couple of numbers we talked about the decline. I think that's a major reason, like the, the early career decline. If you were retired, maybe at 30 or 31, we would have just thought of him as, you know, retired too soon. But after 1987, he never hit over 25 home runs in a season again, never had over 85 RBIs again, never batted over 252 again. Bounced um, around a little bit too. I think that kind of hurt not spending his whole career in Atlanta. Yeah, I, I just and, and like I, I look at it like age thirty two season, he he went from hitting two ninety five the year before to two twenty six, and then the next year hit two twenty eight. So I mean, I like that kind of drop off. I think of you know I, I think of Chris Davis from the Baltimore Orioles. He had those yeah yeah huge couple years there, and then he just completely fell off a cliff. Which again, un- unfortunately, when someone falls off a cliff that much near the end of their career, 
sometimes that sticks in people's brains a little more than it should. And you kind of forget the glory days. Or if you became a fan of the Braves near the end of that, you just, you have a totally different perception of Dale Murphy. I, for basketball fans out there, it's almost like Dwight Howard. I, I hear people all the time talking about is Dwight Howard, a hall of famer. He's a surefire hall of famer. I would people think so, really yeah. forget about the Orlando years because the last four or five years have been just such a, such a mess. And I think that's a big problem sometimes, but people forget how good someone was at one point. So, you know, we I think, tackled... I think Dustin Pedroia, that's going to hurt too. Because like, yep. the last five years of his career were, is he still playing? Is he not? Is he still in baseball? I mean, he had such a great start to his career, but he got old awfully quickly and just seemed like a guy who was never playing for it. It seems to me like as long as it was that he was a great player. Yeah, no, no, most definitely. So before we get to final verdict, Clayne, is there anything else on kind of the case against why you think maybe he's still really lacking any votes from that modern air committee? Those strike me as the, as the primary reasons, and he just seems kind of lost in the shuffle. I think also with the whole steroids era thing, there was such a backlog of talented guys, both on the actual ballot during the, the, the window of, of actual election and now on the modern era ballot, that there's so many deserving candidates out there who seem to be in waiting that he maybe is just not standing out among that group of very deserving people. Yeah, no, that's completely fair. So final verdict, Clayton. I ask two questions, my guests, and then I answer the same one. Do you think Dale Murphy should be in the Hall of Fame, which I, I believe I already know your answer, but then two, the more important question sometimes is, do you think Dale Murphy will actually ever get into the Baseball Hall of Fame? Yes, I think he belongs in the Hall of Fame, and yes, I think he will get there. I think he's just such an objectively decent person as well as an excellent ball player and one of the great stars of his era that he um, – there will come a time when when people will will do right by him. And I, I think he certainly deserves to be in Cooperstown and he will be there one day. Hopefully it's in his lifetime too. Yeah. Uh, that, unfortunately that happens way too often where someone gets in um, after they've passed or in, I know Ron Santos case right after he passed, yeah. which was super sad as a Cubs fan. I, I agree with you. I think Dale Murphy should be in as we've been going through this. I think anyone that dominates a decade, a decade to me is a long time. Any other sport, that makes you a Hall of Famer. I mean, in football, you can dominate for four or five years and make the Hall of Fame. Yeah, Gail, Gail Sayers. Gail, yeah. Gail Sayers. Um, in, in basketball, you can as well. Um, baseball is the one sport still today, Hall of Fame-wise, where unless you're like Sandy Koufax, you, you, you need that longevity. You need to play a long time. Yep. That's how the baseball voters vote. So I believe he should be in. I do not think he actually will ever get in, though. Um, I think the longevity thing is, is too hard for him to overcome. And to be perfectly honest, the fact that he's not even getting three votes right now by that committee, um, there's a lot of people that played during the time Dale Murphy played, and people like Dave Parker are getting close to getting in. They're getting 11, 12 votes, but or I mean, sorry, 10, 11 votes, but you know, Murphy not even being near the top of that list, that means there's a ton of players from that decade ahead of him. And, and I don't, unless there's some sort of, you know, group that gets behind, you know, a big Twitter push or something to get Dale, you know, this episode gets out there and circulates, but <laughs> unless there's a big push out there at some point, I don't know if he's going to get the momentum at any point, at least in even my lifetime. Um, and, and that's just how I see from the voters, how they're voting. Now maybe young voters come in and they, they look at it a little differently. 
But again, I think those young voters coming in, they're looking at advanced metrics more. And, and that's yes. not, again, in his favor. So between that and the old guard that actually saw him play, not feeling like he deserves more than, you know, the three votes of that six, committee of 16, I just don't see him getting in. So I, I, I vote yes for Dale Murphy. I do not think he'll be in the Hall of Fame, though, one day. I think one thing that will help him is just is just time that as they go through cycle and cycle of this month, it'll come back up, you know, every few years, eventually the cupboard is going to get a little more bare and he's going to look pretty good on the shelf. I would think. Yeah. The, the two MVP things will, that will never go away. That will never yeah. lose, um, you know, significance. It's, uh, you know, maybe in 30 years, they're like, wow, there's still only those four guys or Barry Bonds is maybe probably in by that point. There's only three people left that, maybe that holds more significance. Maybe if someone is the best player in baseball two years during his you know, playing time, maybe that guy deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, especially when there's Hall of Famers that never won an MVP award. And there's some Hall of Famers that barely have even top five votes. So yeah, again, I value peak performance maybe a little more than some of the voters, but that's why I think he should be in. But I, again, do not think he will be in. But Clayne, that kind of wraps up our talk on Dale Murphy. I appreciate you coming on to talk about him, but I do not want to get to your book coming out um, next year. Again, February 1st, 2022. I want to ask you a couple of questions, but first I'll kind of turn over to you. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about what this book is and, and what they'd be reading if they, you know, pick this up and bought it in, you know, February, at least in Chicago is really cold. It's a great time to read a book. What, what are they getting if they purchase your book? Well, my book is called Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. It's being published by the University of Nebraska Press, which is the nation's top sports history publisher. It is a history of Atlanta's pursuit of professional sports in the 1960s and the response by sports fans in Atlanta to these teams in the 1960s and 1970s. Atlanta essentially invents the idea that a city is going to go out and try to become a major league community. They had a mayor in the early 1960s named Ivan Allen, who made it a plank of his platform running for mayor, that we're going to build a stadium and an arena to lure professional sports to the city. Between 1966 and 1972, Atlanta gets teams in each of the four major professional sports leagues, the Braves of Major League Baseball, the Falcons of the NFL, the Hawks of the NBA, and the Flames of the National Hockey League, the first hockey team in the South. And things do not go exactly as expected. The teams generally struggle in the standings, and they struggle in terms of drawing fans to their games as well. Part of the issue is having all these teams come so quickly into a city. Part of it is that the people who are locals in Atlanta already had sporting passions, whether it was college football or auto racing or golf or enjoying the outside or even professional wrestling before the big leagues get there. People don't just give up on their sports passions just because there's teams wearing Atlanta across their chest. Also, you have lots of transplants to the region who many of whom continue to embrace the teams of where they're from wearing uh, Cubs hats or Mets hats or um, uh, hats of other from other cities to, to the games. So Atlanta has trouble winning over the transplants has trouble winning over the locals to their teams. Atlanta is also a profoundly suburban city, a very spread out place, and drawing people back into the city to come to these games proves tougher than uh, the owners of these franchises expected. In some ways, this is a cautionary tale. In some ways, this is a, a story of a city on the frontier. It's the first city to really try this. And um, 
many other cities have emulated Atlanta since then, as San Diego or Tampa or Houston or Phoenix have pursued pro sports. They've essentially adopted the same model of trying to hype their way into the big leagues. Many of them have been very successful, but many of them have faced the same issues of, as Atlanta, that what the civic leaders envision pro sports as, as being the source of prestige, the source of civic unity. The locals there don't embrace it in the way that the, uh, the leaders expect them to. So essentially, that's the story of Loserville, and it's available now for pre-order on all the well-known online book retailers. So I'm not going to lie, Claim, before before we start talking, I, I definitely, and I looked into this after, you know, you kind of talked, told me about this book you had coming out. I did not know any of that about Atlanta. So this was all news to me. I also did not realize that this was something that other cities began to do, but I, I guess it makes a lot of sense how, you know, some sports franchises got to, you know, maybe cities you wouldn't think would have them. Is there, I, I I guess what years you might have said in the beginning, I apologize if I already missed it, but what years does this exactly cover in Atlanta from this? It sounds like the sixties until when the book is largely about the 1960s and 1970s. It kind of ends when Ted Turner buys into the Braves and he also buys the Atlanta Hawks. It's basically about the pursuit of the pro teams in the sixties and then the response to them in the sixties and seventies. So, so a lot of the book is trying to get the teams, and then a lot of the book is how do people respond to these teams? It both goes through their, their, their fortunes and misfortunes on the field, as well as the way fans respond to these teams. I cover the, the later decades from the 80s onwards in the last few chapters, too. So I, I bring the story up until the present. OK, and I don't want to spoil the book for anyone, but I, I just I now I'm curious. I have a question. We, did one of the sports franchises take off faster than the others or were they all struggling at the same time was one at least kind of taking hold of the city or were all four just equally struggling throughout what was really taking hold at the time was university of georgia football <laughs> as they became the uh kind of the uh the foil to uh, alabama and the sec i mean but during this time period did they go from having a forty-four thousand seat stadium to by the end of the book having a ninety-two thousand seat stadium so Ge university of georgia is doing fantastic in terms of the other teams, the Braves come to town as a very competitive and successful team. Many people in 1966, the year the Braves came to town, picked them to win the National League. They end up finishing fifth. Um, they have the 1969 National League West Division Championship, but a lot of kind of disappointment on the field. In terms of the Falcons, they were an expansion team, playing in a very difficult era to be an expansion team. They joined the NFL when the AFL is also around taking 400 of the best players in the country who are not in the NFL away from them. So the, the Falcons have a very weak pool of players to pick from, and it certainly showed in the early years. The Hawks were very good when they get to town. They had been very good in St. Louis, had a strong team. Locals, for a lot of reasons, as I discussed in the book, do not embrace uh, the Hawks, even when they acquire Pete Maravich, who was the most famous basketball player in America in the early 1970s. The Hawks are the, the best drawing team on the road and one of the worst drawing teams at home sound familiar uh with the braves um and the flames the flames have an interesting history the flames were surprisingly popular when they got there there was no better night out in atlanta no better date night than go than than bringing your date to the omni arena this brand new arena with nice padded theater seats to watch this game nobody had ever seen before i mean they cheered at icing they had no idea what was going on the fans in atlanta initially but they loved it it was a party very much a party atmosphere at these games the teams, the, the Flames were actually above average in attendance in six of their eight years. They made the playoffs in six out of eight years. Their issue was more that their owner got into financial trouble with some of his investments. 
and sold the team to investors in, in Alberta, Canada, who offered him more than twice as much for the team that he paid for them just eight years later. So the Flames, in some ways, are kind of a tragic story and very misunderstood. I view my book in some ways as much as anything as a defense of the Flame, Atlanta Flames franchise, which if people mention it, talk about, oh, what a, what a mess they were. The people who say that just don't know. So um, this book sounds great. I, I know I, I'm definitely going to read this because I, again, I didn't know any of this and I'm curious about all that. And I will say it's, it's funny that we're actually talking about this now. I was on a two and a half week road trip um, going across the, the U S I went everywhere. I, I went up through Montana. We were going through all these towns wow. and I actually had a conversation with my, my girlfriend while we were driving. I was like, could this team have a pro franchise? Like, could they get a pro? Like we were in Boise, Idaho. I was like, this city seems great. Why don't they have a, a pro team? We're like in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was like, could they have a baseball team? Like, it seems like there's enough people here. Um, it's kind of what I was thinking about on the trip and then talking to you right now. It's kind of perfect timing. Um, last question before I get you out of here, Clayton, you say that a lot of cities kind of you know, try, you know, attempted to do this or, or did it and they were semi-successful, some not as successful. Was there a city that tried to emulate what Atlanta did here and just failed absolutely miserably that you could tell me about? Well, Phoenix struggled to a great extent doing this. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Suns were kind of, the Suns have actually always drawn really well and been a fairly competitive franchise. They had Jerry Colangelo managing them, who's very good at that. But they really got, they got the, they got the Cardinals, they got the Diamondbacks, they got the Coyotes, all in very rapid succession. And that did not go well for a long time. Um, if you look at Tampa, that did not, that certainly didn't go well for a long time. I mean, they're, you know, Champa Bay or whatever now. Yeah. But um I mean, the Lightning were owned by a, a guy in Japan who had never seen a hockey game when they got there. They played at a barn at the state fair. The Rays from day one have been a mess. Um, the Buccaneers were, were in tremendously terrible shape. I mean, they didn't win until their 26th game or 27th game in year two and were, one of, were kind of the laughing stock of the NFL for much of the 70s and 80s. So Tampa very much uh, in, it looks quite similar to what happened in Atlanta, at least in the, the 70s and 80s. So you look, you look around a lot of places, the places that are great sports cities, for one reason or another, have trouble with, uh, with pro sports, at least initially. Yeah, so again, everyone, Loserville comes out February 1st, 2022. It is available for pre-order. Claim before we get you out of here, anything else you want to plug? Sure. Uh, I'd love if people would follow me on Twitter, at Clayton Truder, C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-T-R-U-T-O-R. I'm also on Facebook. I have a website, ClaytonTruder.com. And I'd uh, love to talk to you about Atlanta sports or sports more generally. And uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a genuine pleasure. Of course, Clayton. Thanks uh, for joining. And I'm sure we're going to figure out, any, you know, anytime we're talking Atlanta now, I feel like you're my guy. But any, anytime I can get a, his, a guy with a PhD in U.S. history um, on the line, I'm, I'm going to because uh, you are much smarter than me when it comes to things in the past. So appreciate you don't, coming Don't believe on. credentials. <laughs> That's where we're going to end it with. Do not believe credentials again. Uh, Clayton, thanks for joining. And um, hopefully we talk soon. All right. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. All right. So I want to thank Clayton again for coming on the podcast today. Enjoyed talking about Dale Murphy and his career. Uh, that concludes today's podcast. Uh, if you don't already, please subscribe, follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to 
to podcasts. I know we people outside of Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us uh, on Twitter at Pod of Fame. And if you've done all of that, then you know, have a great week, and we'll see you next Monday.